Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM, it all happens here. Now joining us for the Culture Club this evening is someone whose voice will be very familiar to you here on The Last Word. She's been a guest many times since she started her career in journalism with The Journal about a dozen years ago. But she's also written a book, which I want to talk to her about a little bit before we get to our Culture Club choices. Aoife Barry, thank you very much for being with us here on The Last Word and Today FM. The book, Social Capital, Life Online in the Shadow of Ireland's Tech Boom. Explain that to me, please. Yeah, sure. So I suppose I'm from the generation where, you know, dial-up appeared when I was maybe a young, maybe not even a teenager, just before I was a teenager. And I've grown up with, with social media and I started working, like you're saying, there with the journal 12 years ago when digital media was really evolving in Ireland and the second phase of social media was evolving too. Like when you think about Twitter and Facebook, um, you know, even TikTok and, and all those all those sorts of platforms. And so, you know, I've always been interested in how people behave online and I've always been interested in being online and talking to people and meeting them. So when Catherine Goff from HarperCollins approached me with an idea about writing about the internet or social media in Ireland, particularly because of the fact we have, um, you know, the EMEA bases of companies like Meta um, and Twitter, for example, here, I was really interested in seeing what I could do with it. So because it's such a really broad topic, the book is broken down into different chapters about kind of distinct topics from content moderation um, to cyberbullying, you know, to, to racism online, um, on Online harassment, um, influencers, and it's all based around interviews with different people who are but affected Aoife, by those, those things. Those all sound like bad things. I know. Is that the conclusion <laughs> that you've come to? That uh, the, these social media giants have provided tens of millions, billions, sorry, of euro in corporate taxes to Ireland's benefit. Yeah. But yet, do you see them having a sort of a malign influence in Irish society? Is there too much of a downside despite all of the enjoyment that people might have had in accessing social media? I think really what I came to the conclusion about, and which I kind of felt this way about it before I even wrote the book, because I, I include my own story in the book as well, um, is it's kind of, I suppose, what maybe um, psychologists might call it dialectical approach, which is that the two things that are the opposite of each other are true at the same time, which is that the you know social media in particular can be such a hugely important and positive thing for people. Like I have gotten so many benefits from social media and from the earlier iterations of it. Like loads of my friends I met online, you know, whether they were people I used to go to the same nightclub as and, and went down to the nightclub forum, like the Freak Scene Forum or people I met on Twitter. Um, there's a lot of creativity, a lot of learning, a lot of connection happens and I think if we got rid of all of that we'd all be missing something that we've really grown to love in our lives but at the same time there's a huge amount of bad behaviour online and a lot of harmful behaviour which has happened really because it's all developed so quickly that there hasn't been any kind of guardrails or mitigation put in place in in time to deal with the negative behaviour that can result of people all gathering together on these platforms. So the platforms have really focused on the idea generally of free speech because they tend to be American owned and that you know idea of free speech is very enshrined in, in that culture and less on the idea of the impact of that free speech and we're really seeing the kind of chickens or the digital chickens coming home to roost over the last five or six years in particular where there's been a lot more talk about you know the behaviour of people online and the companies trying to really scrabble to find ways to deal with this you know bringing in more content moderation but then as my book shows the content moderators are suffering as a result of that so I think there's all these really good things and all these really difficult things at the same time and the question at the end 
the book, I suppose, is where do we go from here? Like, what do we do as individuals? What do regulators and politicians do about it? And what do the company owners do themselves? And I think it's a tricky one for like one individual like me to answer. But I think by finding out what people are experiencing online is where we can start to try and tackle what needs to happen. There's another aspect to it as well that strikes me, Aoife, and that is the amount of time we spend online because the algorithms try to hook us into watching and listening to more and more and more and reading more so that more advertising can be sold to us. But you're going to be talking to us about your favourite books and music and television and all these things in the Culture Club. I wonder how much... You haven't seen or read or heard because you might have been wasting time on the internet. I know, isn't that the big question? Um, yeah, it, it really got me thinking, like the book did get me thinking a lot about how much time I spend online and how much time I spend on my phone. Because when you read about how the different platforms are set up and the different companies like Twitter and particularly Facebook, but the two of them are ones that have very much kind of determined a lot of um, and influenced a lot of behaviour online these days. Like they were, they created stuff like the infinite scroll, you know, that idea that you just keep scrolling through them. Um, they put that put that in place to make sure we stayed on their sites for ages. They, you know, kind of tapped into the idea of us wanting a bit of dopamine every time we go online. And I really like a lot of people falling victim to that where I'll go on to Instagram intending to go on for five minutes and I could be on there for an hour. And I do reflect on that and think, I could have been reading a book like I could have read, you know, 100 pages of a book in an hour. Um, so I do I suppose regret um, getting hooked into it, but I don't necessarily totally blame myself because these companies um, and these these kind of items um, are created to hook us in and it's not always our fault I think if we fall fall into that trap but we do have the power to not give them as much power so um, you know I do try to monitor my, my online um, activity and do stuff like not use my phone first thing in the morning but it is always um, a challenge well, I hold have to on. say Yeah because this means that we have people who are problem internet users like they might be problem drinkers that they're trying to moderate their behaviour when perhaps they need to get away from it. Yeah I mean I think it's tricky isn't it to really fully remove yourself from either social media or from the internet as a whole because they're kind of two distinct things in one way you know I mean we use the internet and the digital kind of world to do so much stuff these days you know from online banking you know to watching TV shows etc and then with social media you connect with people there. It can be really good for your career. I mean, as a journalist, particularly if you're a young journalist now, you'll probably be told set up um, a Twitter account or set up a TikTok account, show that you are there and show that you're doing some work. You know, it's like if you're not online, you might as well not really exist. So yeah, I think it's it's a tricky one. And I think that there, I wonder in, in 20 or 30 years time, you know, what we're going to think about this phase now because things have moved so incredibly quickly, you know, from when I first started in digital media to now. And I don't think we've had the chance to really sit back and assess what this all means. And there are people who, you know, spend too much time online. But that's been a thing since the internet was invented. You know, there are always kind of stories about people who would spend all day in internet cafes and particular, you know, um, subcultures of people who would like to spend all day in in an internet cafe. So it's not necessarily social media's fault either um, that that's happened. Let's move to your Culture Club choices. We ask every guest to start by admitting to the first single that they ever bought. (laughs) What's yours? You know, I can't remember, but I think it was by Boyzone. It probably was because I was a really big Boyzone fan when I was like maybe nine or ten or thereabouts in eleven. Um, so I would imagine if I bought something, it wasn't cool. It was probably by a boy band. So I'm going to say Boyzone, and I I loved them. I just thought they were just great back in the nineties. Nothing wrong with that at yeah. all. I said that because Keith Duffy's a friend of mine. So let's hear <laughs> a little bit of picture, <laughs> of picture of you. 
That's a good place to start. <laughs> well, it's going to go rapidly away from pop from here on, I'm afraid. It is. I was, and you're one of these people, and I don't have an issue with this, but when we asked you to nominate one album or one gig or one band, you gave us long lists. I couldn't do it. Like, I mean, my back, my background is like, I started off writing um, when I was 16. Like, my first published work was when I was 16. I used to do um, album reviews for the Douglas Weekly, a free sheet back when I was a teenager. I was just so hungry for writing about music once I got into alternative music so it's so hard for me to pick like one album I'm maybe that's just the kind of person I am anyway I find it hard to narrow down things to, to one thing uh, even in even with my career but yeah so I gave you a big long list of, of records well, and give books us three and albums we're allowing you three albums before we play a clip from one okay so the first one is Grace by Jeff Buckley um, a record that I got into as a teenager and I really feel like my teen years I talk about them a lot and probably write about them a lot and reflect on them a lot because they had such a massive influence on who I am today and I just really really fell in love with um, this record and it was one that a load of my friends were into I was introduced to it by my boyfriend and it was just I suppose an eye-opening time where you got into an artist who'd had a, a tragic death as well he had died way too young he'd only brought, brought out one one record before he died and the songs in it are incredible and every single time I listen to this record now I just marvel at how good it is There's so it's just stunning from beginning to end and he is somebody I think who whose reputation still stands, Jeff Buckley, because of the, the incredible quality of the, the music he made while he was alive. Well, before you mention the other two, let's yeah. hear a little bit from that album, Grace, a little bit of Last Goodbye. This is our last goodbye I hate to feel the love between us now But it's over Just do this and then I'll go you gave me more to live for, more than you ever know. Well, this is our last embrace. Must I dream and always see your face? Why can't we overcome? Baby, maybe it's just because I didn't know you at all. 
The great Jeff Buckley there with Last Goodbye from the 1994 album Grace. What are your other two choices quickly? For so please? the other two are Either Or by Elliot Smith, um, a person who I was so obsessed with when I was um, in college and I'm still such a huge fan of and his, his records just taught me a lot about how musicians evolve and I think that's why I really love his music and it's really delicate and again he died again very tragically and it was such you know sad news when we found out that he, he had passed away. Um, the, the third album is Journey in Satchidananda by Alice Coltrane which I probably got into in the last 10 years or so. Um, she was married to John Coltrane and she made this record after he died and she was a long-time musician and improviser and she's so talented and this, this has amazing harp on it and it's just, it opened my mind to a whole other world of like this cosmic jazz and it's just really stunning. Favourite band? Now this is where you have a long list. <laughs> I like I would I, yeah I find it really hard to say like this is my favourite band but I think Low are probably my favourite band um, they were a trio who have been going for like probably about 30 odd years um, they're from Duluth Minnesota I first started listening to them when I was about 18 picked up one of their records in the record store Plugged in Cork and they continually released records up until this year and the two core members of the band are a married couple Alan Sparhawk and um, Mimi his wife and Mimi actually died earlier this year year, um, or sorry, late late last year I think, and in, within the last few months and um, she and Alan were two people I was such a massive fan of, you know, in terms of their music as people, they just seemed really wonderful. I saw them play so many times and I actually saw them play um, one of their last gigs, um, I think people found out after that that Mimi had cancer and their loss was just so massive I think for all of their fans and I had lost my dad and stepdad just very shortly before Mimi died and so I, I tie that death in you know with their with their death and it's kind of very meaningful and, and sad to think of somebody that spent a lot of time that you were listening to them for a long time passing away um, but they will always have that such a huge legacy for me and their records are just incredible they're kind of lo-fi but as they as they progressed through their career they got heavier a bit of electronic music came in and they were always evolving and they were just incredible so yeah they're called low well you, ha- you actually had low for your best gig as well at Vicar Street yeah. in 2022 we don't have anything from that gig but we do have them playing in Chicago in 2022 it isn't something So that's low. Tell us some of your other favourite bands. Okay, in the long list I gave you, uh, Sufjan Stevens. I just love Sufjan Stevens so much. Another person I've listened to for a long time and seen live and he's so good. Um, Sharon Van Etten. Um, Aoife Nessa Francis, Irish musician. I just love her two records so much. Um, hey Chalkline, a Welsh musician. You brought out a stellar record this year. I'd recommend everybody buys it. Todd Rundgren. I have a really soft spot for, seven, for this kind of 70s era, kind of, you know, um, early 70s, late 60s, early 70s. And Todd Rundgren is such a great, is such a great um 
uh, musician. Um, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, I mean, who doesn't love impeccable harmonies? Self-Esteem, another newer artist from the UK. She's so good. I just love her lyrics. Um, Harry Nielsen, I'm a big fan of anything that's kind of leans towards maybe like power pop, you know, within that kind of 70s vibe. And he's another great musician. And uh, Nadia Reed is another person I put on the list as well. She's a New Zealand musician who's only released, I think, three records. And her second record is one of my fave of the last last number of years. But I could be here for another hour naming off people. I'll just leave it Well, let's play a little bit of Sif Shan Stevens. Here's a little bit of Should Have Known Better. Stevens there. Just very quickly before the break, Aoife Barry, I see also in your list of best gigs, you're two very different acts. The Gloaming at the National Concert Hall in 2018 and Kendrick Lamar of Primavera in 2014. <laughs> yeah, I contain multitudes, uh, like most uh, music nerds, I think. Yeah, The Gloaming, I like cried at that gig. I went, they did a couple of gigs in over a couple of years and the last one they did at National Concert Hall, I literally cried at one point because it was so beautiful. And Kendrick Lamar at Primavera, I can't believe that was nine years ago. It was just so good to see him live um, I was really into the record that he had out, out at the time and it's been amazing seeing him evolve as well as an artist as well too um, and I had Fleet Foxes in Berlin as well I saw them just as they brought out their first record and didn't even realise who they were when I saw them and they astounded me and they were great in Dublin as well last summer and Lowe as well at Vicker Street not realising that it would be my last time ever seeing them as a trio play really really beautiful emotional gig Aoife Barry is the author of Social Capital, Life Online in the Shadow of Ireland's Tech Boom and she'll be back with more of her Culture Club after we've had the traffic. Aoife Barry, the author, is with us today going through her choices. We've finished with the music, so let's move to movies and tell us what movie you've picked for us, please. Again, this was kind of hard, but I wanted to pick three ones from three slightly different eras, but the, the main one that is one that I've loved for so many years and that I think I probably know every single word um, in of dialogue in it is The Princess Bride directed by Rob Reiner it's just such a great movie you know it's it's a love story it's kind of like a romantic comedy it's really funny um, it tells a really traditional story but it has a really you know unique take in it it's, it's based on a novel um, by William Goldman and 
you know, Carrie Elwes is in it. And it's just one of those ones that when I was a kid, I really loved it just for like the basic kind of funny jokes that were in it. You know, you have people like Wallace Shawn in it, who has these incredible lines in it. You have Mandy Patinkin and he again has this really kind of great dynamic with, with Wallace Shawn. But it's such a great example of a film that as an adult, you get even more out of it. And also, you know, I thought Buttercup, the, the main female character in it was great because she kind of fought against those stereotypes that you would have um, of a princess character that you would have in these kind of romantic films but myself and my siblings all really loved watching this when we were kids We have a clip in which Mandy Pantikin, Carrie Ulls and Andrew the Giant devised their plan to break into the castle and rescue Princess Buttercup Why won't my arms move? You've been mostly dead all day We have Miracle Max make a pill to bring you back Who are you? Are we enemies? Why am I on this wall? Where's Buttercup? Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. Buttercup is marrying Humperdinck in a little less than half an hour. So all we have to do is get in, break up the wedding, steal the princess, make our escape. After I kill Count Rogan. There doesn't need much time for dilly-dallying. You just weigh all your fingers. That's wonderful. I've always been a quick eater. What are our liabilities? There is but one work in Castlegate. Come on. And it is guarded by 60 men. And our assets? Your brains. Physical strength. I steal. That's it? Impossible. If I had a month to plan, maybe I could come up with something like this. You just shook your head. That doesn't make you happy. My brains. His steel and your strength against 60 men. And you think a little head jiggle is supposed to make me happy? Hmm? I and mean, if we only had a wheelbarrow, that would be something. The Princess Bride. What are your other two movies? Um, a Woman Under the Influence, directed by John Cassavetes and starring his wife, Gina Rowlands, an incredible actor, and Peter Falk, who I just love, Columbo. Um, the film basically is about a, a woman who's basically falling falling apart and her husband's struggle to deal with it and her struggle to deal with it. It came out in 1974, and during lockdown, I got totally obsessed with John Cassavetes, even though his films are quite depressing and very long, and it's very hard to get some people to watch them. But I just really loved his, his outlook on creation and being a filmmaker and the third one is Call Me By Your Name directed by Luca Guadagnino starring Timothy Chalamet and Army Hammer about two young men who fall in love on, on holiday in, in Italy and myself and so many of my friends just loved this film when it came out in 2017 the soundtrack has Sophia and Stevens on it um, it's a bit controversial because Army Hammer starred in it but if you can kind of ignore that aspect it's a really beautiful film Let's move to television. And why was it that as a child you were obsessed with the X-Files? <laughs> I really loved the X-Files. Um, it's funny, I wouldn't have thought of myself as someone who was like a real sci-fi person or anything. Like I had friends who used to go to a sci-fi club um, way back and back in the day. And I think I might have gone a couple of times with them. But I was never someone who was madly into one particular thing um, or the other in terms of genre. But I just loved that every episode of the X-Files, Mulder and Scully were investigating really bizarre, strange things. And it was it was like a little movie, you know, in every episode. It was that introduction... Um, to that that type of, of TV making for me um, and I just loved the dynamic you know um, between Gillian Anderson and David Duchovny I had a big crush on David Duchovny and I went back and I re-watched some of the first season when I had Covid a couple of years ago and was just prone on the couch and couldn't do anything and it still really stands up there you know I did probably didn't pick up on as much on the sexual tension when I was like 14 or 15 watching it but when you're an adult watching it you pick up a lot more on that and every single episode is just impeccably written I mean, as it went on, 
it did get, you know, not, maybe the quality wasn't as great towards the end, um, particularly because they kind of had to figure out what to do with the couple, Mulder and Scully's relationship. But really, so many seri- seasons of it were just brilliant. And I had two friends, uh, Mio and Julie, who were also really into it. So we'd also talk a lot about the series. And we were in school too. We have a clip from The X-Files and this is when uh, Gillian Anderson, her character Dana Scully, meets fellow agent Fox Mulder, played by David Duchovny, for when she is assigned to watch him. Major Mulder, I'm Dana Scully. I've been assigned to work with you. Oh, isn't it nice to be suddenly so highly regarded? So who did you take off to get stuck with this detail, Scully? Actually, I'm looking forward to working with you. I've heard a lot about you. Oh, really? I was under the impression that you were sent to spy on me. If you have any doubt about my qualifications or credentials... You're a medical doctor. You teach at the academy. You did your undergraduate degree in physics. Einstein's twin paradox, a new interpretation. Dana Scully's senior thesis. Now, that's a credential, rewriting Einstein. Did you bother to read it? I did. I liked it. It's just that in most of my work, laws of physics rarely seem to apply. There's a bit of the X-Files. I see you also have friends and bug juice from your childhood and yeah. I don't really have time to talk about them but I am interested in that something from that era, something that's now I think ended 25 years ago is something you've come to recently, Seinfeld. Yeah, um, last year I started watching Seinfeld. It's on Netflix and I basically went through pretty much the entire like season or all the seasons in a row and it was you know I was pretty late to Seinfeld I'd seen a couple of episodes but hadn't really got into it and it was really good finally catching up on that part of pop culture and understanding things like Festivus that uh, you know when when friends of mine were joking about it which is a kind of an anti-Christmas celebration in it and also I felt like um, as I think I probably said on Twitter once I felt like every day I was checking in you know with my sociopathic friends in New York City and I really enjoyed doing that every day for a good few months. Okay, now from recent television, I see you've got Yellow Jackets and we've talked about succession on this programme so often. I'm not going to get back there again. But I am interested in one, The Bear. And I've watched a bit of this and I must get back to it. Why have you gone for The Bear? I just thought it was so refreshing. It's about a young man who ends up um, running a restaurant that his brother used to run after his brother um, dies. And you meet these characters. They're really fully formed. They're all in this pressure cooker, excuse the pun, of a small kitchen in Chicago. And it's all about trying to make a business work when everything is against you. And it's edited really interestingly. It's really, really frenetic. And there's a huge amount of high energy in it. And it's just really, really kind of got that great energy that like hooked me from from the get-go. And I think it's the kind of series that there's another season of it coming out now in the at the end of June and I'm really curious to see if they can carry over that energy. I also did my J1 in Chicago and I really love the city so it was nice seeing it from that point of view too. Let's hear a little bit from the Bear Warren. Carmi and Sydney meet and let me warn you there is some strong language in this. Hi. Hello. Hi. I'm Sydney. I called about the soup position. I'm massaging today. Right. And you said Shit, I massage sorry. Today. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Carmi. Um, hey. Here, you give me your... Uh, um, yes. Thank you. Uh, linear smoke vec. That's some serious heat. What's, uh... 
What's UPS? That's in Chicago. Or? Uh, United Parcel Service. Shit. The one. That's the, the UPS. mail. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what'd you what'd you do for them? Drove. Pay my way through culinary school. So. CIA. Uh, CIA. Yeah. Okay. So what are you doing here? You know, this um, this was my dad's favorite spot when I was a kid. Come here every Sunday. Special place. Good. Um, okay, so you know the drill. We, uh, you're going to make family. It's meat plus three, and we, we eat around two. Yeah, her. Dope. Cool. What's up? Can I just, like, ask you a question, maybe? Of course, yeah. I know who you are. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I'm, I mean, you're the most excellent CDC at the most excellent restaurant in the entire United States of America. So, what are you doing here, I guess? Making sandwiches. One of the calmer extracts from the normally frenetic <laughs> The Bear, which is very good. Now, we are running short on time, so I'm going to move to books and yeah. authors. Give us a bit of a list here again. Yeah, Mrs. Caliban by Rachel Ingalls, which is about a woman who falls in love with an escaped sea monster. It's one of the best books I've ever read. It's amazing. Um, I just love it so much. I've reread it and I rarely reread things, to be honest. Um, a Wrinkle in Time by Madeleine Long, which is about a young girl and her brother who try to find their father who's gone missing. They have to travel through space and time. This is written many decades ago and it still really stands up. And I like I love books by Joan Didion, Bernard McLaverty, Anne Enright, Sarah Baum. I could go on and on, but I think Mrs. Caliban Caliban is the one that really just showed me a lot about imagination and where you can go with the story. What about plays? Um, yeah, I, it's funny. I don't get to go to as many plays as I like. I don't feel like I have a big history of going to theatre when I was, especially when I was younger. But I'm trying to do it more now that I live, lived in Dublin for a good few years. But the one I really think about a lot is Our Few and Evil Days by Marco Rowe. It was about nearly 10 years ago and it's about a couple who have a visitor to their house and he starts stirring things up and you get a lot of revelations and twists and it was quite shocking to watch it in the Abbey and I really enjoyed that. To finish up, we always ask our guests for a cultural buried treasure, something, anything they'd recommend to anyone. I'm going to play a little bit of it and then you can tell us what it's all about. This is by, this is called Let Us Dance by Beverly Glenn Copeland and the album Keyboard Fantasies. Barry, what is that? <laughs> 
Uh, it's a record called Keyboard Fantasies by Beverly Glenn Copeland, who's a musician who has been making music for years and years and years and, and in his kind of career was making music for kids shows like Sesame Street and back in 1984 made this album called Keyboard Fantasies, sold only a handful of copies but then around kind of maybe in the last 10 years a guy in Japan started asking him, can you send me copies of your record because I've heard it and it's really good. He did that and that led to the album being reissued I think in about 2017, 2018 and I caught on to it I think a little bit after that and it led to this resurgence not not me not me listening to it but other people listening to the record and buying it led to a resurgence in interest in Beverly Glenn Copeland's career. There's been a documentary about him he has a new record coming out and it's kind of like electronic, new agey it's just made with keyboards and a drum one keyboard and a drum machine and Beverly Glenn Copeland's voice and it's just you drift away on this little new age sea of electronic bliss when you listen to it I just adore it you do have time that you devote to your music and to your <laughs> movies and your books and the new book that you've written is Social Capital Life Online in the Shadow of Ireland's Tech Boom Aoife Barry thank you so much for having been with us on The Culture Club The Last Word with Matt Cooper weekdays from 4.30 Today FM.